Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. It's Basic Folk, a podcast where there are honest conversations with folk musicians. And I am your host of said podcast, Cindy Howes. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hope you had uh, a safe holiday uh, and we are back in action. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about Grace Pettis. Grace Pettis is a songwriter living in Austin, Texas. Grace Pettis is leaning in, the founder of Nobody's Girl, along with Rebecca Loby and Betty Sue, and also the daughter of beloved songwriter Pierce Pettis, was raised in a homogenous community steeped in a traditional Christian faith. This led to some questionable decisions as a young person, including not reacting in quite a loving way when her best friend Landon came out to her as a gay man when they were teens. Fortunately, that frame of mind and that action do not define her. Through contemplation, information gathering, and soul searching, Grace landed in a different place. She realized how she had done Landon wrong and also that she could only express it through song, which is how her new song Landon came about. Grace relates to and prefers brave songwriters, and that new song certainly is brave. An interesting note to make about Grace is that even though her dad is a successful musician like Garth Brooks, Joan Baez, and many others have recorded his songs, her parents did not want their children to pursue music. That all changed after Grace attempted to teach herself on a self-purchased cheap guitar, which is no bueno. Her mom, seeing her daughter's struggle, finally let Grace play her fancy, nice Martin guitar. Eventually, her dad let her use one of his guitars, and things began falling into place. She moved to Austin, started playing open mics, and attending Kerrville Folk Festival. She even won the New Folk Award at Kerrville in 2011, which is something her dad also won in 1987. Grace is very open and honest in our conversation. She addresses questions ranging from how she is actively being anti-racist to her Star Trek podcast, which is called Troubadours on Trek. Needless to say, we love Grace. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we are so happy to have her on the podcast. We're going to take a listen to her song, Landon, and then we'll get to our conversation with Grace Pettis on Basic Folk. From the day we met, I was never the same. You were the mascot at the football game. Big brown eyes in a wildcat suit Hugging your knees outside the classroom Favorite child of a single mother I Loved you more than a boyfriend, more than a brother 
Grace Pettis, thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for having me. You were born in Tallahassee, is that right? Correct. And then you moved to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And then it sounds like I was trying to like figure out the history a little bit. It sounds like they separated when you were like five or six years old. Yeah. While you were still living in Atlanta. Yep. Um, what do you remember of life before they split up? Um, I actually have a really good memory. Um, when I was a kid, they thought maybe I even had a photographic memory because I could just remember very vivid um, sort of cameo things from uh, from periods of time when I was two, three, four, you know. But um, yeah, no, it, it's just, I mean, it's fragmented like most people, but I have like a few clear, a few clear memories. Um, we lived for a little bit in Ohio and I remember snow from that period of time. We were there for just like a year when my mom was teaching at Marion, Ohio. And that's the only place other than like outside of the deep south that I lived for my entire childhood until I was um, 14. Was it 14 or was it? No, it was like 12. Hmm. Wait, okay. It would have been like eighth grade. So no, 14. 14. No, no, no. Ohio was when I was like maybe two. And uh, and then when I was 14, we lived in Ireland for a year. But other than those two places, I spent the entirety of my childhood in the Deep South. So was born in Tallahassee, grew up mainly in Atlanta and in um, Mentone, Alabama, like kind of simultaneously. But my parents started out being married in Atlanta. And then, um, well, when we came along, you know, they they were in Atlanta when we were really young. And then they divorced and then my dad stuck around in Atlanta in kind of a crappy apartment for some years and then eventually he got a song cut by Garth Brooks and was able to buy a house and he moved back to his hometown which is in Alabama and then where was your where's your mom so my mom is originally from Chapel Hill North Carolina but she grew up there and in Florida and got a job in Atlanta at Georgia State where she taught for a lot of years. And she's now currently in Ireland where she is teaching as well. She's teaching at the University of Limerick and she's like a poetry scholar and professor. She's She sounds like a genius. She kind of is. She's, yeah, she's one of these scary smart people. It speaks a lot of languages, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I want to learn more about, so like they thought you had a photographic memory, but like does, does that... S- does that still come into play for you? I think so. Um, I think it's just that I was a noticer of details, and then I tried really hard to like hang on to those details. Like I actively wanted to remember things. I think as a really little kid, um, I was an observer, and so I just had a really good memory. I could remember if you played a song for me, I could sing it back to you. You know, mm. after hearing it one time, things like that. I just kind of picked up on things and then could remember them well. And so my dad was like convinced I had some kind of a memory thing like that, like a photographic memory thing, but I don't think I did. I think I just paid attention. Hmm. You know? Did you ever did you ever talk about your past lives? Um <laughs> I've never like I've never dived you know, I I will say there was one time I went down that YouTube rabbit hole. It was like a bunch of videos of like, you know, the kids who like found their way, like, convinced their parents to take them to this, some stranger's house and, like, knew all these details about this person or whatever, and, you know, all those kind of YouTube videos about evidence of past lives. That's interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Um, what did you understand 
about your parents' divorce as a little kid, and do you see that continuing to affect you as an adult? Well, when I was a little kid, I had a juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which is um, a disease that affects more girls than boys, and it's kind of directly related to trauma, which... <laughs> Probably, you know, getting that diagnosis for my parents must have sucked because they were really good parents and they were trying to take care of us. And it's not like they weren't abusive or, you know, there was no violence in the home. There's nothing like that, nothing traumatic in that sense. But I think I just was a really sensitive kid. And the idea of, you know, this thing that I took for granted that was so much a part of the backdrop of my existence just suddenly not being there anymore was traumatic for me um, as a sensitive kid. And I sort of internalized it all. And like, I just kind of think of it as like, I sort of sucked it all into my body somehow. Um, and so I, I had chronic pain for a lot of my childhood and I couldn't do things that other kids could do. Like I couldn't do cartwheels or climb trees or do those things until later because every movement was just like a lot of pain. Um, and so because of that, I was like a very indoor kid and a very internal kid. And I made up stories and I made up songs and I, um, just lived inside my head. And my reality really was what was happening inside of my head and inside of my body, um, and not outside of it. Hmm. Um, so I've always had like this kind of respect for the realities that people can't see necessarily as you know, still being real and sometimes the most real. Because um, all the other kids, like, they couldn't tell there was anything wrong with me. And, uh, but I knew that I was in pain. So when you have that kind of experience, it just sort of teaches you to trust your own feelings and trust, I don't know, trust your own reality. Mm. Even if it's contrary to what other people are experiencing. When did that, how did they treat that and when did that go away? Well, they started treating it, I would go to the doctor every week and get blood drawn. Um, and I was on kind of a cocktail of a bunch of like pills, which were mostly like herbal supplements and things like that. They took me off dairy for a long time. They took me off meat for a while, like raw meat, just just like, or uh, red meat, I mean, which I don't remember why, but they thought that might have something to do with it. Um and I did some exercises to keep my muscles from atrophying, you know, so they, there's like little kid exercises that I had to do. And, you know, hot baths are really all you can do because it's, it's a disease that attacks like your joints. And so basically all the places in your body where things connect are in pain. So for, and for different kids, it's different parts of your body, but for me, it was kind of everywhere. So it was like wrists, ankles, you know, shoulders, um, you know, this like elbow, like this little part here, knees, you know, all of those kind of neck, any kind of joint. And it's a lot like what old people feel when they're arthritic, mm. you know, it's the same kind of experience. And so all the same things help, like long, hot baths, warm weather, um, and not moving around that much. What age did it start to, start to go away? It's funny because I can't really pin, like I should ask my mom because she'd be the one, we could email her after this and she can give you some <laughs> some actual data but we'll do uh, a follow-up interview, follow interview with my mom um I think it must have been around like fourth grade but I'm not 100% sure um but I do remember there was like it just kind of gradually faded 
And then at some point I just stopped having episodes because you sort of have these like attacks, you know, so you could be sort of relatively fine mm. for a few weeks and just have like maybe a little bit of dull ache in your wrist one day or something, but nothing really bad. And then all of a sudden it'll flare up and then you just can't do anything. So there was like a period where I was, mm. I was out of school for like two weeks one time and, uh, you know, my mom who, you know, had a job, <laughs> had to, <laughs> had to like be home with me and, you know, keeping me in the bathroom and, and in the bathtub and just kind of like, you know, there wasn't much she could do. So it must've been agonizing for my parents. Um, wow. but yeah, it kind of just faded away somewhere around fourth grade and it never came back. I was prayed over in like a tent revival when I was, I want to say like eight or nine. So kind of right before that. And I do think that there was a connection between that and it going away. Like there was just a lot of people directing prayer at me and I had an experience. I had like a Jesus encounter at the, like when I was a kid, this sounds weird even talking about, but it did happen. Um, and it was really real for me. And, um, I felt like I had been healed, which it's not like a thing I really talk about a lot because, I feel like the culture around Christian healing in America is a little bit whack. And there's like this idea that if you're just kind of good enough or something, that God will take away your pain. And I, I don't believe that. I don't think that God is a vending machine. Um, and I don't think that pain is unholy. I think sometimes it can be holy. And I think, I don't know. So I, it's, I kind of like, I struggle sort of like talking about my own sort of like healing experience. Um, and I have a lot of friends that deal with chronic pain and it, it makes me uncomfortable to think about mine going away and there's not going away, but you know, it did happen to me and it went away and it didn't ever come back. And, hmm. and I think, um, I think about that time and I think like, I, I, I don't know if I'm more grateful for the pain going away or for having the pain in the first place, because I think it made me the person that I am and it made me like empathetic in a particular way and I'm grateful for that you know what I mean mm. so it's it's hard yeah. it's it's you know what we consider blessing what a blessing is I think is an interesting conversation yeah that's a lot there yeah wow. thank you <laughs> I'm thank still you for sharing it. that <laughs> no it's, yeah totally yeah like I did um read that you grew up in a homogenous community that was sort of encompassed by traditional Christian faith. Is it Catholic? So not Catholic. Um, and that was one half of my upbringing, right? Because my parents were divorced. So half the time... So they're two different religions? Two different religions, two different political views, two different worlds. Um, I grew up until I was like 13 or 14, most of the time at my mom's house, which was in Atlanta. Um, where most of my friends are black and there were very few white kids in my school and my mom is very liberal. Um, but it's still the South, you know what I mean? And then on the weekends, I would be at my dad's house, which is in a small town in Alabama. And that's the town that my grandparents are from and my aunts and my dad all went to high school. So I have a lot of roots there too. Um, and I consider myself very much from that town. And that's, that community was a lot more homogenous. Um, maybe around the time I was in middle school and high school, it, we had more and more diversity. We had more Hispanic kids in our class and stuff like that. But for the most part, you know, that part of the country is 
pretty white and and very religious and very conservative. Um, so I grew up it, it's more kind of evangelical. We also had a lot of like Church of God stuff, but my mm -hmm. dad is kind of a moderate evangelical. But he kind of started going to mass when he married my stepmom because she's Catholic. But that wasn't until I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 or something. So I wasn't even familiar. Catholic church was not on my radar before that. It's different. It's different. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Sit there and be quiet. Did you grow Listen up to us. Catholic or? Yeah. I'm getting that vibe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a particular like, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm kind of lucky. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just that, like, they put a bunch of nuns in charge of kids that, like, should not have been taking care of children or, or what. But most of the Catholics mm. I meet that grew up in the church, like, just very, <laughs> you know, the recovering Catholic thing. So Yeah. Well, I'm also learning that there's, like, fun Catholics and not fun Catholics <laughs> or, like, liberal Catholics and conservative Catholics. Um, mm -hmm. when, you were a, when you were a kid... What did your faith look like and what has been the evolution of like what you what you believe in versus like what like the rules are? Yeah. In terms of religion. Um so when I grew up I kinda had a patchwork um DIY Christianity because I just went with all my friends. So my mom was a Quaker and she just believed in letting me church hop and go with friends and kind of try everything. And so I did. And I, um, I had a, had friends of a lot of different faiths and a lot of different denominations. And I kind of like, it was just a big buffet table to me basically. Um, and, and I felt like I experienced God in a lot of those places. Um, but really the, I guess the defining aspect of my faith as a kid was my own, um, deep relationship with Jesus that was like a daily defining part of my life. You know, I just would talk to God constantly and uh, I felt really close to God, especially when I had all that chronic pain. Um, the idea of a God that's on a cross was very relatable to me and very comforting. And um, so I talked to Jesus all the time when I was a kid and Still do, you know. So that's that was the defining part of my faith experience. And then from there, it was just kind of figuring out all the rest of it because I had a lot of Christian authority, you know, that I experienced, like, giving me a lot of messages about what Christians believed. And I was just a kid, so I sort of just, like, took all that at face value. You know, well, Christians think this, and we Christians, we believe this. And you know, so it takes you a while to kind of sort that out. And that's where I got a little confused, I think, about some things. But, yeah, it took a while. It took a while to kind of sort it all out, I guess. I'm still really sorry. I would imagine, out. yeah. But I became Catholic. Yeah. I became Catholic when I moved to Ireland um, because the Catholic Church is so much a thing over there. And I... That's the law. Yeah. it's Well, it's, yeah, it's just like it's in the water. It's just everywhere. And um, I had... You know, I'd started going to Mass with my dad and my stepmom, and I didn't really understand the rules about, like, First Communion or anything. I was just like, oh, there's Jesus. I want that. And so I was, like, taking communion. And mm. so for me, it was, like, this process of, like, reverse engineering my own Catholicism or something, starting, <laughs> starting in Ireland and then through high school and then uh, finally got confirmed in college. 
I want to talk about this little like mountain town that you spent a lot of your time in. Uh-huh. How do you say it? Men- Mentone. Mentone, Men- Mentone Alabama, mm-hmm. a tiny little mountain town near Fort Payne, mm-hmm. which is where the band Alabama is from, yep. which, oh my God, that was like one of the five tapes that we had growing up. Really? Um, yeah. Where did you grow up? Massachusetts. And you had, and that was one of the five tapes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Um, so the town sounds like it was like really remote and rural place that was mm-hmm. like generally 10 years behind the rest of the country. Like, yeah. What did you, you, so you probably, you grew up in like the mid 2000s and you were like, we had dial up and no cell phones. Yeah. Um, can you set the scene? Like, I mean, I I feel like I set the scene pretty well, but can you set the scene for your hometown and talk about like what you appreciated about it and what you didn't appreciate about it? And do you consider sure, it your yeah. hometown? Yeah, I do consider it my hometown. And I know I didn't, like I grew up as much in Atlanta and Decatur as I did in Alabama, but I went there on the weekends. I went there in the summers. It was kind of like my happy place. It was it's a place I feel really deeply connected to, especially the mountain. And um, and my family's from there, so that's another thing. Like, my mom's family, none of them are from Atlanta. And it's a big city. It's like a place that we were transplanted. But uh, Mintone feels like a place that I'm from. And, um, you know, so I, I feel connected to it in a lot of ways. I like the pace of life is just slower there. People kind of take their time. Um, people are very kind. You know, you don't really know your neighbors. There's a lot of privacy on the mountain. You sort of like, there's a solitude about it that I, that appeals to me. And the mountain, it felt like a place that you could know very deeply. Like when you live in a place like that and it's small and you, you kind of become an expert in that little one corner of the world and you know more things about that place um, and so even if you travel and you go all over the world, you can know a lot about, you can know a little bit about a lot of places, or you can know a lot about one little place. And I feel like that's the kind of wisdom and knowledge that people have there. It's it's probably some kind of a remnant of like what the native people had when they lived there. Um, you know, we lived in the woods, like we lived in a log cabin and um, it just, I still feel really connected to that part of it it was like a little behind you know just like logistically it's hard to get (laughs) hard to get the internet on the top of a mountain you know Mm -hmm. um and rural places are you know historically in this country like the last places that are sort of serviced when it comes to that stuff like you think about the tva and things like that we you know we're kind of a forgotten part of the country appalachia what's the tva the tva the tennessee valley authority it was like a government um, project during the Great Depression where they put people to work and they paid them to like improve the infrastructure in the Appalachian area because in terms of white people anyway, it was like one of the poorest parts of the country and still is. And, you know, so they had kids walking around barefoot. They had, you know, cabins without floors and no plumbing, no electricity, none of that stuff. So the TVA and the WPA sort of um, modernized that area and kept people from starving at the same time. So it was a good good thing that happened there. But yeah, it's, it sort of has that feel, like culturally, that we're always sort of like forgotten about. And, you know, everything from the hairstyles to the, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Everything's yes. just a little bit behind. And that's both kind of infuriating and like completely charming at the same time. So 
<laughs> I don't know. Um, your dad is Pierce Pettis, a very accomplished singer-songwriter who's written songs performed by Joan Baez, and you mentioned Garth Brooks. Yeah. Um, his house, which is a cabin in Alabama, I heard that you said he calls it the house that Garth built because <laughs> yeah. he bought it. He bought it after um, Garth Brooks perf- uh, recorded his song "You Move Me," um, and I know that the house means a lot to you so uh, if you could talk about like what the house was like and what did it mean to him at the time that he bought it like did you see a change in him after he bought that house yeah totally oh my god yeah it was um it was such a huge I guess season in his life because he had been just the struggling songwriter for decades at that point and um working really hard and and trying to make a name for himself. And then uh, Garth Brooks covered one of his songs. And it just changed his whole life. Like, he had this windfall because publishing in those days was pretty huge. It's not now. Um, But in the 90s, I mean, that was crazy money. And so Garth Brooks is, like, the biggest artist at the time. No, it was insane. And uh, so he was able to, like, buy a house with cash, you know? And after having lived in a one-bedroom apartment in kind of a sketchy part of Atlanta for years, um, he went from that to, like, a nice, pretty nice house. You know, it's not like a mansion or anything. It's like a two-bedroom house, but it's it's his house, and he owns it, and it's on the mountain, and um, and he paid for it in cash, you know? So it's, it's kind That's of awesome. the dream. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was interesting. Like, at that point, it probably would have made sense for him to move to Nashville because he, he got the publishing deal, and he had all the writers that wanted to write with him and all this stuff, but he um, he wanted to be closer to us because we were in Atlanta. So he sort of compromised and ended up in Mentone, which is where he was from, but also kind of a nice halfway point um, between the two. So that's how he ended up back there. How far is it from Atlanta? It's like, I want to say like two hours. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. It depends on how fast you drive, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you weren't always with your dad when you were a kid, but when you were there, it sounded like your dad would like separate his work life, like music, and his personal life. Like you said, he rode in a writing shed and kept music away from you all, which is really interesting that now you're a professional musician. But what impact do you think that had on you as a kid? Well, he just, I think he always... And maybe this is just a product of his upbringing, but I think maybe he had this sneaking suspicion in the back of his head. And this is just me speaking for him. So I, you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it just felt to me as a kid, like maybe he thought deep down that this music thing wasn't a real job. And you know what I mean? Like that it was like sort of, I mean, but at the same time, he took it really seriously. But He bought a house. He bought a house with it. I know. But even then it was kind of like, like he wanted us to have real jobs. He wanted us to be lawyers and doctors and, you know, not be on the road for weeks at a time away from our spouses and threatening our marriages. And like, he just wanted normal and safe and predictable for us. And I don't know if that's part of why he kept those things so separate, but I think another part is just that he's a really intensely private person when he's writing which a lot of us songwriters are. It's kind of hard to write a song when you're around three screaming kids. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it just kind of naturally became this, like, division between, like, you know, home dad and, like, musician dad. Um, We're two different people for us. Hmm. 
Um, you now occasionally perform with your dad. Mm -hmm. What is that experience like for you? Like, how do you see yourself in his music and maybe vice versa? Well, we're, um, it's funny, in a lot of ways, we're really similar. And in a lot of ways, we're really, really different. You know, politically, we're a little different. Some of those things. But I, I am still like, I, I can't think of a songwriter that I think is better than my dad. I think he's the best and I don't think it's just because I'm biased I like <laughs> I just think objectively he's one of the best songwriters that there that there is and um I love hearing his songs I feel like it's a real kind of privilege to be able to ride shotgun and and share a stage and be that close to it and to his process and to really get to you know see behind the curtain of like how it all works and when I was a kid, I just desperately wanted that. So as an adult, it's still this thrill just to be able to like be a part of that and kind of understand him in that way that I didn't really get to understand him as a kid. Um, so I love that part about it. And I also love that we get to spend time together because we both tour a bunch. And so we never see each other. You know, we see each other like Christmas, <laughs> you know. So mm. when we play together for a week or two out of the year, it's like our chance to kind of like catch up and, and hang out. And, um, and we have a lot of fun. And then like there's always that point somewhere around like two weeks in when we're both kind of ready to call it quits. And, and maybe two weeks is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, you know, it's <laughs> two weeks is a long time to be in a car with anyone, but w with your parent and especially when you and your parent are just like such. High, highly intense people <laughs> it's just it it makes for um yeah it's a bit of a goldfish bowl so after a while <laughs> also in like having um a famous dad you found that people will listen at least one time to your music and in what ways is that like complicated to have that kind of in with people like is there added pressure or maybe it's like not complicated at all so i yeah, I think it, it was really good when I was starting out because there's a lot of 19, 20-year-olds out there with guitars writing songs, like trying to get people to pay attention. And it was like a calling card that got my foot in the door. And it just, it, it kind of, it helped me get those first few folk gigs. It helped people pay attention when I entered contests and stuff. You know, it's the definition of privilege, really. It's like, it gave me that first listen that a lot of people don't get. And um, at that point, people still had to like it, you know, for me to get a second listen. But I got that first listen. And when I was starting out, I was a little, like, uncomfortable um, using his name. It just felt like a cop-out. And I remember he told me, like, this business is hard. And especially if you're a woman in this business, like, this business is really hard you should use whatever you can use whatever you can and don't apologize. And I just, that just kind of stuck with me. So I sort of stopped apologizing for it and just started using it more at that point. And then after a while, somewhere around like six or seven years in, I felt like I had enough to stand on that it was sort of a distraction from the work I was trying to do and the art I was trying to make to just constantly have it all be in reference to my father. Um, like there comes a point as a woman when you, you know, you carry on the family business or whatever that you have to kind of make your own name in the world. And I think people, people kind of constantly, even now, want to 
think of me, you know, in, in that context primarily. And it's been, it's been a little bit of a struggle to be like, yeah, well, I've done a few things on my own in mm. the past 10 years, you know? So, but, um, yeah, it's like, I have a record deal. <laughs> I've got a record deal with my other band. I've got a publishing deal. I've had a few cuts. I, you know, it's nothing major, but it's like, I, I have a few things. I have some songwriting awards under my belt, you know, and, um, it's enough that if I was a dude musician, I think, I don't think they would be doing it as much, but, um, mm. there are like some venues and stuff that still book me as like, you know, Pierce's daughter is going to be with him too. <laughs> and mm. so it gets a little frustrating sometimes. And my dad gets frustrated with it too. Like he'll, you know, for the record, like he, he does a good job about working for like equal billings and, um, that kind of stuff. But yeah. Cool. All right, now some questions about your mom. Okay. Um, we were talking about her earlier. She's an English professor, teaches Irish poetry, a Yeats scholar. Sounds very impressive. <laughs> so I tried to look that up, and it's like, a, is it a Virginia Tech thing? No, so Yeats was an Irish poet, W.B. Yeats, and uh, he's probably the most famous kind of quintessential poet that people think about when they think about Irish poetry. And his family's a little bit like the Kennedy family over there. They're just sort of like these national treasures that everybody kind of knows about and have a little bit of a celebrity status. Um, so it's pretty cool because my grandfather was really good friends with that family and um, he was a Yates scholar. And then my mom, speaking of daughters picking up the family mantle, um, my mom <laughs> sort of did the same thing and became became a Yates scholar and became the Yates scholar, you know? So yeah, it's like a family tradition, I guess. That's awesome. Um, she sounds like a really smart and like really passionate person. So what was it like to have her as a mom when you were growing up? Well, she worked really hard a lot of the time. And as a kid, it, you know, you're like an annoying kid and you're like constantly breaking into her office and trying to get her to pay attention to you. <laughs> it's like she has like 9 million papers to grade or whatever. So and then, you know, the older I got, the more I kind of respected that she had her own life. And she had all these really interesting friends. She would have these parties and just kind of bring over um, a lot of her, you know, academia friends. And they'd have interesting conversations and stuff and drink a lot of wine and, like, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was cool. It was cool to grow up around, around that. And um, she's a very – she's a big believer in – um, nonviolence and like quiet, um, which was tough for me Quaker. as a kid. Yeah. Um, because I'm a big believer in making lots of noise <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so we definitely kind of butted heads a lot over that. I think we had different personalities in that way. And, um, mm. I'm, a, yeah, I'm a big loud person and I take up a lot of space and I always have been. So, Yeah. So I think we had to kind of find our way. I was constantly trying to like kind of egg her, you know, egg her on and, and kind of get more out of her because she was so kind of cool and collected and, and like wouldn't rise to the bait. And so I was constantly trying to get her to rise to the bait. And so that I think that was our dynamic for a lot of years, especially when I was a preteen and a nightmare like most preteen girls. Totally. Um, but yeah, but now it's something obviously that I appreciate about her. You said, my mom always really loved poetry, so I would think poetry must be really lame because my mom <laughs> likes it. I was an idiot. Yeah. Great quote. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 
When did your connection to poetry change? Um, honestly, I think it's, it's, I'm still, I'm kind of embarrassed about it because I'm so far behind the curve. Um, I have so much to catch up on. I just kind of avoided it for so long. I mean, it wasn't really until college that I even started thinking that maybe it might be cool. And, uh, you know, so it's, I had a lot, I have, <laughs> and then at that point I just felt like I was so far behind that I shouldn't even bother with it. Cause I haven't read all the things I'm supposed to have read by now. I love that mentality. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> it's the best. So I'm like, I'm just going to stick with like Star Trek and songs because I put a lot of hours into those things. And <laughs> I'm like, you know, I have a chance at, you know, being an expert one day if I work really hard at it for another 30 years or whatever. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think um, I would like to dive into that more one of these days. Well, there was one time me and my friend were thinking about like basically hiring my mom to like do a DIY crash course in poetry because like neither of us had really studied it in college and we wanted to catch up. Um, and something I still might want to do. I mean, I, I could just text her and she would give me a list happily of like where to start. Um, so it's just this really laziness on my part, but maybe we could ask her for the podcast. Yeah, I'm sure if you ask list. her like a starter list of like, I don't know, 10 or 20, I mean, it'd be hard for her to pick, pick the books. I think you would get a list that was longer than the parameters yeah, of the I bet. experiment, oh, I bet. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, she, well, she teaches, um, like modern poetry and she teaches Irish poetry and she teaches like American poetry she does a lot with like um, gender studies and um, feminist studies and stuff. So like, it would be an interesting list. We'll put it that way. Mm. But um, cool. But yeah, yeah, you should ask her for that, and maybe I should right. do that too. <laughs> All right, we'll ask her together. Okay. <laughs> um, you have three siblings, and it sounds like two brothers that you grew up with, uh -huh. George and Ravon. Ravon, yeah. Yeah. I read that everybody has like pretty big personalities yes. and like you are the only girl. Yes. Um, <laughs> what kind of relationship did the kids have and like what impact did your siblings have on your personality? I mean, we we're just like a pack of rabid animals all the time and I just pity my parents. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, me and my younger brother, George, sort of like our dynamic was we were either like beating the crap out of each other or we were best friends. And it was just kind of back and forth, back and forth. And then Rayvon... Are you the middle kid? I was the middle kid, yeah. And I'm like yeah. two years younger than my older brother and a year and a half older than my younger brother. Um, and so me and my younger brother, George, were like, we were the ones that we, we kind of just were like, we were almost like magnets, you know, and then we just like would flip sides. So we were either just like intensely... <laughs> <laughs> drawn to hanging out with each other and then we'd reverse polarity and just have to like be a million miles apart so it was just like kind of a constant back and forth with him and then my older brother Ravon is a very private um quiet person kind of a lot like my mom really but um he really didn't want to have anything to do with either one of us he was he liked to play by himself he liked to make up stories and things and we, and we all were like imaginative that way and we all were sort of like solo operators but George and I engaged with each other a lot more than than Ravon did with either of us um and then kind of a cool thing happened when George got a little older when he was like in high school or college they all of a sudden started hanging out together and doing like the brother thing and like growing it up and now they just they hang out constantly and I'm like never invited so that's the dynamic now <laughs> 
That's wild. And then we have a half-brother, Owen, who is 16 now? Yeah, I think he's going to be 17 in October. And so he's he and I are a little closer because he was just like a baby when I was six, 15, 16. So um, I've always been kind of more like an aunt or something, you know? Right. Is he? He's living in the cabin. Yeah, part of the time, although... My dad and my stepmom are split up now, too. So my stepmom is in a house in the valley in Fort Payne. And then my dad is in the cabin on the mountain. And Owen kind of goes back and forth. Up and down the hill. Up and down the mountain, yeah. (laughs) Okay, I want to talk about your song, Landon. Mm Mm-hmm. It's basically an apology to your best friend who came out to you in high school. Um, And I think that this also relates to the questions about religion and faith. Mm -hmm. Um, And you wrote the song as an attempt to understand my own complicity in and to make amends for the harm I caused and not fully embracing him when he had the courage to come out. Um, In writing that song, what do you now understand about your complicity? That's a great question. I think that I didn't ever think about what it must be like to be a queer person in the South, even though I knew some queer people growing up, because I didn't have to, you know? So Mm -hmm. it was easy for me to just have those kind of fallback answers from pastors or, or whatever or politics or whatever, because I I hadn't ever thought about it because I didn't have to. And then when it was my best friend who mattered to me more than almost anybody, you know, uh, it forced the issue. And it was something that I couldn't just kind of not think about anymore. So I think that's, that's the easiest answer. And I think this is, it's an interesting conversation, especially now that as a country, we're talking so much about racism and systemic, you know, racism and, and uh, the idea that silence can be violence and that by, you know, passivity can be violence um, when it's an unwillingness to engage and think and ask questions and empathize, then, you know, it's like that is a stand in and of itself that you're taking. Mm-hmm. So. I think that's that's the sin that I committed. It wasn't it was a sin of omission, you know? And I just think that that is such a worse thing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. So then any kind of sin that I might have thought he, you know, was guilty of at the time, you know. So It's so funny cuz it's so funny you um bring that up because I had a question about this experience with Landon in like you're realizing that you were supposed to listen and support when he came out to you, like how that experience may have prepared you for learning and working to be a better white ally. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely it did. Yeah, I think the work of being an anti-racist is very similar to the work of being an anti-bigot, you know? It's about, it's not about just not being racist. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, that's not enough. Mm -hmm. 
Just like it's not enough to just not be homophobic. You know, that's that's a starting point. Tolerance is like the very bare minimum. But um, being an ally is about listening and amplifying other experiences um, instead of your own and being willing to be like an active supporter and an active, um, an active listener, I guess. Yeah. Um, it seems like the lessons you learned from Landon and writing this song, like really have a lot to do with like what's going on right now. And yeah. in reading about it, you said like years of soul searching, prayer and information gathering led me to a very different place. I knew I had wronged Langdon in a way I could only explain in a song, um, which like sounds like such a such an interesting long journey. Um, but how did it feel yeah. to face that shame head on? You know, um, it's funny because I think about the shame that queer people have to face head on when they have grown up with those with that messaging of like who you are is a sin, who you are is wrong. Um, who you are is, is a perversion, like all of this kind of messaging that they have to grow up with. And then as you know, the process of like unlearning that has to happen. And for me, it's like, you know, as a perpetrator of that, I think it was a similar process, ironically mm. of, yeah, just kind of like an, an undoing, you know, of a cloth or something. It's just like you take it apart thread by thread and it just, it takes a while yeah. You know, you can't you can't get there overnight. You have to sort of start and then just gradually take that thing apart. That's a great. And that's a great visual. Thanks. <laughs> like yeah, it's a, yeah, it's like an unwrapping. And so it it starts by like asking some questions like, well, why would God make people? Why would he design people a certain way if that design was flawed? You know, like why would he do that? Um and how can loving someone and living you know, a life that honors another person in love and, you know, how can that be wrong? And so you start by asking those questions and then, you know, when it, especially when it's someone that you know to be a good person. And Landon was, is one of the best people that I knew. I mean, he was just like this really kind, um, big hearted, giving, wonderful person. And so it didn't, it didn't, uh, What's the word? Like, it didn't add up. You know what I mean? Like, all that stuff about, oh, he's this big center. Like, it just didn't make right. sense to me because I couldn't reconcile those things in my head. So I had this kind of cognitive dissonance, in dissonance, you know, and I had, to, I had to figure out why it felt that way. And it just felt like this thing tugging at my sleeve, just like kind of pay attention, pay attention. And I really think a lot of it was God. Like, I think that God put him in my life and put me in him, his life and kind of was relentless about bugging the shit out of me until I paid attention to it. It's like a Jonah and the whale situation. It's like God was like, no, like you're going to pay attention to this. And, and it took an embarrassingly long time for me to friggin' pay attention, <laughs> you know? Like I was, a un, I was a reluctant prophet, I guess is a way of putting it. And um, I didn't want to believe that all those things that I had thought were wrong I didn't want to think I was wrong because it's easier if you think you're right then you're justified in everything you did and you did nothing wrong and like 
yeah, you can feel bad for that person, but you're in the right. Mm. So it was, it was not something that I wanted to do, but it just felt like, I don't know. It just felt like a thing that it felt like something was pursuing me. Um, and just relentlessly trying to get me to pay attention to it is the way that I would describe it. And yeah. And for me, like it was a spiritual experience, um, of unlearning, Mm. you know? So can you imagine if you like just ignored it forever? Like you'd be so different. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and we do, right? Like we, we have those moments all the time and, and we shut the door. Yeah. It's so strange how, um, shutting the door seems easier than like facing it head on. Yeah. Well, and it's easy when it's, you know, if I was gay, I wouldn't have the luxury of even considering shutting the door because I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to, because it affected me. Just like if you're a black person, you can't not think about police brutality. You don't have that luxury. Like the luxury to weigh these things over in our minds is a privilege. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So I, I think, but I think every day, we're given opportunities to reconsider um, and we take them or we don't, you know, um, it's a lot like songwriting. It's, you know, you get these ideas every day. People always ask where the ideas come from. Like ideas come from everywhere. The whole world is an idea. You know, everything is a sacrament. Everything is beauty. Everything is material. It's just like, are you paying attention? You know, so that's a question. The question isn't where does the material come from? The question is, are you paying attention? Mm. You know, and it's it's the same thing with um, confronting your own bias and confronting your own sin. You know, confronting your own darkness is about paying attention. Yeah. Um, and it's sometimes it's hard work if we don't want to do the work, but it's important work. I just want to watch TV. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much There's so great much TV. TV. <laughs> really great TV. Yeah, I agree. Your friend forgave you. And I'm wondering what that did for you in terms of your perspective on forgiveness and how you've reckoned like with your former self, like have you forgiven your former self? (sighs) That's a tough one. I mean, if I'm honest, like I I love to beat myself up. Um, It's something I'm really good at doing. And I haven't totally forgiven myself for the things that I thought when I was a child but um, I need to. I need to let it go. And Landon is the one that is constantly telling me that I need to let it go. Um, He is, I mean, not only did he forgive me, like he, it wasn't even on his radar to be angry or bitter about it. I mean, we had kind of gradually drifted apart um, after I responded that way. But Compared to the way that a lot of his friends and family responded, I was pretty tame um, because at least I kind of coded it in this like sugar coating of kindness or whatever of like, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner thing that you do um, Mm. as a good Christian girl. And and a lot of his other friends and family weren't so, you know, they didn't bother. Like they just said some really horrible shit to him. And uh, just rejected him, like at a very basic level, and and cut him out. And um, so, I think like just probably by comparison, I ended up coming out looking pretty good, you know. But um, it didn't feel that way to me. So my experience of it was like this: these years of like 
carrying this around and trying to unpack it and trying to take it apart and like trying to lay it down. You know, it's like a burden that you're trying to let go of. And his experience of it was like, I don't even think I, I probably didn't cross his mind that often, to be honest, you know, like, and if I did, it was a positive thought. It wasn't because he was out there just trying to like live his life and, you know, become who he was like courageously. And, um, that was what he was focused on. And, um, you know, it's just like, he kind of didn't have, he didn't have a lot of bitterness. He didn't have any bitterness toward Mm -hmm. me. Um, and he didn't waste energy on that. He just kind of moved on to the next chapter of his life. And I'm sure like, I mean, he has a lot of pain, um, from that time, but like weirdly, none of it was from me. Um, which is, I'm grateful for that obviously, but like, um, it, it kind of didn't change what I knew about it and what I felt about it, you know? So, but he is constantly like, you know, like even the way that I introduce it, like he comes to shows sometimes and like, I'll be on stage and kind of like introducing the song and it's like hard for him to watch because he doesn't like seeing me beat myself up on stage. you know. Mm. And he's like, can we introduce this in this way? And how about you say it like this? And I'm like, okay. And like, so we're constantly like kind of having that conversation. How does he Um, think you should introduce it? Like focusing on the positive, you know, focusing on, um, you know, we hope that this song helps you. Like we hope that the song reminds you that it's never too late to reach out to people you love and mend those fences and and uh reconcile and and do those things and reach out to the people that you love and tell them that you love them you know just the basic stuff mm-hmm. like and i i get too wrapped up in well i really screwed up and here's what i did and mm-hmm. you know it's like i have to kind of publicly like confess my sins or something every night so catholic yeah, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> but it honestly it feels good <laughs> to do that <laughs> so, for me because it, it's it's like sort of therapeutic or something. Yeah, it's like being an alcoholic. It's like every time you say it, it gets a little easier to say. Yeah, and um, owning it feels good for me. So that's why I kind of like always seem to want to do that. But Landon sounds like an awesome person. We should get He's a list. A really good we, we should get a list from him too. Yeah, you should. You should. He's an actor um, and a dancer, and like he's out in LA now. So okay, we'll get a he, list. Get a, of- you should get a list of like movies or something. Okay, from him. we'll do that. <laughs> Quick story. Your parents, even after they divorced, were united on the don't play music for a living front, which we talked about a little bit, but you uh-huh. were determined to learn music and you bought yourself a crappy guitar when you were 15 and yes. you really hurt your fingers on it and bled all over the place. <laughs> and your mom yes. eventually let you play her Martin, which is a nice guitar, what was that moment like for you when she allowed you access to not only like her, it sounds like a very special possession her of hers, her guitar, yeah. but access to something that she'd been working so hard to discourage you from for years? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will say like that that makes it sound like like they were both like, no music. You know, my mom, <laughs> they both kind of oscillated between um, being really, really proud of me and wanting to encourage me to be artistic, but wanting to encourage me to pursue something else as a serious career. So it was like, it was a thing that they encouraged and 
got a kick out of until I hit a certain age. I want to say like 13 or something. And I started saying, I'm going to be a music, I'm going to be a musician like over and over and like, well, Grace, don't you think maybe you could be a teacher? You could be a library, you know, you could be a doctor. And I'd be like, no, I'm going to be the, I'm going to be a musician. And like, (laughs) just kind of, you know, very sure about it. And at that point they sort of tried to steer me toward other things, but um, my mom would constantly talking to me about colleges and stuff. But um, yeah, so I think, um, at that point, they they stopped kind of making it easy, <laughs> but um, but yeah, yeah, I, I picked up her guitar and and my mom is actually the one that taught me the first chords that I learned on the guitar and the first song that I learned on the guitar. So I think she probably was more encouraging than my dad was. <laughs> um, but neither of them were super thrilled at the idea of any of us going into music, so. But they were very proud of us. Like they would, they would, you know, they would brag to all their friends and stuff as well. Like, but they just, like my dad would do this thing where he would like, when I first started recording and making little demos, he would like play them for all of his friends and like brag about him. But he would never tell me. I would hear it from other people. You oh, know? that's uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, did you know your dad was at this party and he like was telling everybody how great you are and how awesome you are? I'm like, really? Because he's never said that to me. <laughs> but... But he was just trying to like not he I think he he has this philosophy about music in general that like it's something you should only do if you really can't help yourself and you can't possibly think of anything else that you could do. <laughs> like and, and whenever people ask him, you know, when when these kids come up with their guitars and they're like, What do you have any advice for somebody starting out in music? He's always like, Yeah, you should do something else. <laughs> like he's just that guy who's constantly like Look, if you can do anything else, anything else is going to be easier and you'll make more money and like you'll save yourself a lot of grief if you can do anything else. Right. And, uh, so, but there's the, I mean, it's kind of implied that like some people just can't do anything right, else. Right, right. I mean, look at me and my brothers. I mean, and they have other real jobs or whatever, but they're both musicians. Like I'm a musician. I mean, we all just kind of, we can't help ourselves mm. and- and I think in a way it's kind of good that I had that to push against because it sort of made me, it gave me a little bit of like rebellious teenager energy that I channeled into becoming a musician. <laughs> so. Totally. Um, okay. So you went to college at St. Edward's University in Austin mm-hmm. and around that time you would work a merch table for musicians but I didn't write down where, but it was during college. Blue Rock Studio. Blue Rock Studio, which is yeah, a venue and yeah, a recording so, studio. Yes, yeah. It's a luxury, like, boutique um, artist ranch in Wimberley, Texas, which is just south of Austin. And, um, like, they just had the most amazing singer-songwriters come through there, and I would get to sell CDs for them, and they let me come to the shows for free, which I was a broke kid from Alabama. So that was the only way that I would have been able to go, you know? And uh, I heard some amazing artists and I heard them up close because it was sort of like a house concert vibe where you're, you know, it's something like 60 people, 70 people or something sometimes. And you're in, you're in this really intimate space with incredible sound because it's a recording studio. Um, and Billy Crockett, who runs that place, him and his wife, Dodie, um, he's a producer. So he, you know, he has those ears. And so it was just always great 
great music. That's where I met Ruthie Foster. That's where I heard Ruthie Foster for the first time when I was like 18. When I it was like on my 19th birthday weekend that I heard her for the first time. So, and she did um, one of your songs. She recorded two of my songs. Whoa! On her last record, which changed my whole life. Kerrville Folk Festival has a pretty special place in your songwriter heart. Um, yes. Can Can you talk about what that festival is like and how um, you first came to it and why it's so important to you? I first went there um, when I was in college, and uh, I want to say I was like 19 or so, you know, and it was that first summer after my freshman year, and, and uh, I had a friend named Judy who had a truck, and I met her at church, and I, went, I was going to this little hippie church called Journey and Perfect Faith Community, and she was like, well, I've got a truck. I go to Kerrville every year. You need to be at Kerrville. You have to come to Kerrville. And, um, and I was like, I don't know, Judy, like I can't afford it. And she, she's a lot older than me, by the way, I should say, like, she's one of my closest friends, but she's, she's like in her sixties, you know? And, um, she was just like, yeah, well, you need to come to this thing. You need to come to Kerrville. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. So she, I think she bought my, I want to say that she bought my first ticket there. I believe that that's true, but I can't, remember either way she drove me there <laughs> and let me camp with her and all of her campers out there and um so that was my first Kerrville experience and I entered the, the songwriting contest that year and I didn't get in but I got there's like an, an honorable mention runner-up thing that they do called ballad tree and it's specifically for like Texas songwriters so if you're like a runner-up and you happen to be from Texas then they let you play at the ballad tree well you get there and what you find out that that means is like that you lug your guitar to the top of this hill <laughs> and you play like two songs under a tree to like 10 people or whatever. But, um, and there's kind of an open mic thing, but it's a lot of fun. And it's kind of, it's, it's like, uh, you feel super legit. Like I felt very like, oh, I'm a ballad tree. And it is, it's, it is a legit thing. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's just funny looking back on it now. Cause it was like this pinnacle thing for me at the time. And, um, but anyway, that was Kerrville stayed up all night hung out around campfires, met a ton of songwriters. I wrote like three or four songs the first time I went um, that weekend, you know, so. I read that you and your dad are the only parent-sibling duo to win both a new folk contest. Like he won, I don't know what year he won, but then well, you Well, he actually won in, won in 1987, which was the year that I was born. <laughs> so <laughs> right before I was born, right before I existed, he won Kerrville. And then... Um, I won in 2011. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think I think we're still the only parent-child, but it's been going on for like 40 years, so there's bound to be another one eventually. Totally. Um, Rebecca Loby and Betty Sue, you actually met at Kerrville? Yes, we did. Yeah. Another yeah. reason that place is magical. Yeah. What is that connection like for you? Well, um, like there's just a tribe of folk singer girls, you know, and around the nation. And we all sort of congregate there and we all know each other. And um, occasionally we play shows together when we tour around the country and um, stay in each other's houses, sleep in each other's couches and stuff. And so both Rebecca and Betty Sue were just sort of in that, I don't know, in that tribe for me. They were just two chick singer-songwriters that I met and liked and hung out with. I smoke cigarettes on top of Chapel Hill with Betty Sue at three in the morning one time and <laughs> played country songs. And um, Rebecca, I met um, right after she had had her like 
her moment, you know, where she was on The Voice and the first season, and it was a huge, huge deal. Mm. Um, and she was just like, like all of the singer songwriters were just, you know, crowding around her like flies, like trying to get a piece of it, you know, and, and she was just the kindest person I had ever met because she just took time with every single person and answered all of the dumb questions and, you know, gave people whatever contacts and whatever venue, you know, recommendations or whatever, you know, she just like, she was a kind, considerate, attentive person. And, um, yeah. And so that was my first experience of Becca. She was kind of like somebody that I, her, her and Betty Sue, really, they were both people that I looked up to. Um, I mean, Becca's just a few years older than me, but it felt like she had accomplished so much more, <laughs> you know, at that point. And she had, and like, uh, so I looked up to her a lot. She has this like, she has this like stoic maturity about her. Yeah. But also this kind of bubbly joyfulness too. It's like, a, it's an interesting yeah. combo. How does she do it? I don't know. I don't know. She's Ooh, like a little why? kid and an adult at the same time. Um, <sighs> and Betty Sue, I met, you know, Betty Sue won Kerrville the first summer that I was out there just doing the balladry thing. That was a year that she like won. And so she was on the big stage and I just was like, oh my God, she's so good. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, just kind of being in awe of her and, and um, yeah. And then over the years, you know, we all kept coming back and like we just became friends like you do. And then, you know, Rebecca had this idea to go on tour and she wanted to do kind of like a Southern female songwriters in the round kind of idea. And, you know, Betty Sue's from Houston. I'm from Alabama, Georgia, and she's, she's from Georgia. So, and we all live in Texas and we just thought it was kind of a cool way to sell a few more tickets or whatever, um, <laughs> package tour thing. And somehow we talked Betty Sue into doing it, who was incredibly busy at the time and neither of us thought she would do it, but she did. Um, and so we kind of, we like to say we tricked her into being in a band because she was, <laughs> she definitely like, if we just come out and said, Hey, you want to be in a band? She would have been like, no. <laughs> Cause she's, she was in like so many bands and is in so many bands. Um, Charlie Faye and the Fayettes. And, um, she tours with like James McMurtry and Bonnie Whitmore. And she was touring with like Jamie Harris. I mean, she's just like very busy all the time. And mm. as a side person, as a songwriter, as all the things. Um, and so she definitely would not have had time to be in a band, but then we just kind of accidentally found ourselves with a record deal and she was like, all right, I guess I'm in another band. <laughs> so that's how that worked. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so on, we've talked about this here and there in this uh, interview, but on social media, you've recently been sharing articles, videos, photos, having like actually like pretty intense conversations online, like on your Facebook about the Black Lives Matter movement. How have the recent protests about the murder of Black people opened your eyes to ways you've lived in privilege? I mean, it's like you think that if you're, you know, it's like, oh, I'm liberal and I, I vote for candidates that don't think the police should shoot Black people, so I must be pretty woke, you know? And then I've got, like, my five Black friends or whatever, and, and you just kind of, as a white person, you sort of sail through life thinking you're doing enough. You know, and I think it's just when things are on film, I mean, this stuff has always been going on. It's always been happening, but we haven't seen it in the same way that we're seeing it now. 
And in some ways, like the last few years have sort of like prepared me for it in a way because I, I've had a black roommate for the past three years and my husband is brown. I've been married for 10 years. So I've seen racism in little micro doses and I've heard about it secondhand. It's kind of like secondhand smoke or whatever. But I haven't, I, I haven't experienced racism because I'm a white girl with dimples from the South, you know? So I, I'm protected from it in that way. And my encounters with the police are always go well. <laughs> you know, I've like never really, I've had like one bad one. And all like, I, I never get tickets, you know? And I even joke about it. It's, I've joked about it in my stage banner about not getting tickets. I talked my way out of a ticket one time and the police bought a CD. I mean, it's like, that's the difference between my experience and a, a black person in America, you know, where it's like your hands are on the wheel because you're afraid that if you put your hand in your pocket, someone's going to shoot you. So it's just, I think I've, I've been slowly waking up to it more and more every year, but I have been confronted with it the way that every American has been confronted with it, um, with that video of George Floyd and with Breonna Taylor and, you know, Ahmad and all these things. And like, you know, we, we just, it's, it's in front of our eyes now. It's like there are people being murdered on our smartphones, like in front of our faces. And so when that's happening, you just kind of, you have a choice. You can either change the channel or you can let it affect you. It's, it's this conversation that we had earlier about um, every day there being opportunities to pay attention um, and every day there being opportunities to, to rethink and reconsider. And um, I just feel like we're getting a lot of those these days. <laughs> You know, that again, like like I said earlier, like that ability to like think about your privilege and take things apart and that that's a luxury that we have. To like to be educated and inform ourselves and watch thirteenth and do all these things and like that's a luxury that we have as white people that we can just kind of luxuriously and slowly educate ourselves to what's going on. You know, if you're a black person, you probably had that conversation with your parents when you were like ten, where they were like you have to walk a certain way. You have to dress a certain way. You know, you have to act a certain way so that nobody shoots you. So that's the difference. You know, I, I heard this this um, interview on NPR. It was like last night or the night before or something. And um, there were these two mothers. It's like a black mother and a white mother. And they were talking about conversations that they have with their kids. And the white mom was, you know, they were talking about how when you're a white parent, so much of what you do is like, oh, let's, let's encourage our kids to be confident. Like, let's instill them with, you know, a sense of self-worth and, and, and just protect them from anything bad. And because of that, you're maybe not having conversations with your kids about racism. And then for black parents, it's like, let's toughen them up and prepare them for what they're going to face. You know, so it was like, that's, you know, what the black mother was saying. So it just was like this completely different you know, you have these two women living in the same neighborhood and living in completely different countries, <laughs> you know? Mm. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I guess I've just been, I've been seeing it. I've been hearing about it. I've been um, calling my black friends, you know, <laughs> talking to them about it and um, thinking about it and, and not letting myself off the hook about it. And so that's, I'm trying to, it's, it's tough right now because we're all supposed to stay home, you know, and I will go to protests, you know, but I, I'll do it safely if I can, but I'm going to go. And um, 
Also, I'm going to use social media. I'm going to use like any method that I can. I'm divesting from banks, big banks. I'm, you know, we're moving all of our money into a black owned bank, things like that. Like I'm, I'm trying to actively broaden my professional network in music to include more people of color and queer folks and black people. And I want to make more friends that don't look like me. You know, I want to collaborate with more artists that are different, you know, from me and have different life experiences. And, and so that's a thing that I'm, I think I've been really lazy about it. I've been like, well, all of my friends are just, you know, we play folk and country and we're all in this, like I'm friends with the musicians I'm friends with because we're all at the same venues and we're all playing the same gigs. It's like with the Kerrville thing, you know, most of the people that go to Kerrville are white because it's country folk. And, you know, most of the performers that have been on that stage have been white and, they are trying really hard, especially now, you know, diversify, but like in these genres that we're in, they're, they're just very, very white genres and the people that get the opportunities are white. And so then all of the people that you know are white, unless you make an active um, attempt to go out to other kinds of clubs <laughs> and hear other kinds of music, you know, and when you come across an artist in your genre that is a person of color, like actively working to empower that person and bring them into the fold, you know? And so those are things that I'm trying to work on more. And that I would say those are the places where I have been complicit. I found a story about you talking about like this, you, you don't want to be the, you want to be on the side of change and not be complicit in whitewashing the South. And then you said, I don't write songs with an agenda. Some people can make that work, but I can't do it. But I'm wondering if like, you're talking about you want to use every platform and outlet that you can, but how do you feel differently about about that now, about writing songs with an agenda to be anti-racist? Yeah, it's funny because I, I just wrote a song called White Noise, and it's an anti-racist song that's directed at white people, and um, we're going to release it in, soon. And so like that's I have been writing songs that come from a real place of what I'm feeling. You know, that, that song just came directly from this emotion that I've had, like that we've all had, which is just horror and heartbreak and frustration. Um, when we see our friends posting shit like all lives matter or, you know, stuff about con Confederate statues or whatever right now. And you're just like, how are you not getting this? And so I, I just had this kind of deep emotion and it sort of came out as a song. And that's how Landon was written too. Landon was something that I, felt deeply and needed to express and like tried to write as a letter and couldn't and had to had to turn into a song to be able to just process and say like it's just the language that I have to work those things out I guess um and mm -hmm. to communicate with other people but I don't ever go in going like I'm gonna write a song about white privilege you know what I mean like I can't I can't do it that way so and I know there are some political songwriters and, and protest writers who work that way and more power to them. I just, it's just not the way it works for me. It's the same reason I couldn't move to Nashville and just go into an office every day and write songs about trucks. Like, cause I, I just, it doesn't matter what the agenda is. I can't write that way. It's the same reason I can't be a Christian musician. It's not cause I don't love Jesus, but you can't pay me enough money to go in an office every day and write songs about Jesus. I just, that's not how it, that's not how it's ever worked for me, you know? So it has to it has to come from a true place. 
And I have to allow it to become what it wants to become. Totally. Like it kind of seems like you need to keep doing the work that you're doing and the songs will come. Yeah, I just feel like um, even if it's a fictional song that you're writing, you know, it's coming it's coming from a true place. So you find something true and beautiful and you sort of latch onto it and then you let the song lead and you let the song tell you what it wants to become. And sometimes you think you know where it's going and it goes somewhere totally different. You have to kind of allow room for that. Um, there's a little bit of a mystery to it. But if you hold on to it too tightly, like it's just going to come across as hollow or soulless or something. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's been my experience. All right, now I want to get the latest on your Star Trek podcast. <laughs> okay. Oh. Well, it's called Troubadours on Trek, and uh, I'm about four episodes in. I interview musicians and... Um, and music industry friends as well. And we review an episode of Star Trek together. So it's very niche, <laughs> but I like to say. Um, is it released? It's not released. No, I'm still in the process of kind of editing. And I'm also working on launching a Patreon. I can say that now. I have officially like teased it on social media or whatever. Sweet. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of like reconfiguring my creative life is how I've been putting it into um, sort of redirecting all of my creative energy into this one platform and sending everybody there. And you can be a part of the group with $1 a month. You can be a part of the club with $5 a month, $50 a month, whatever you want to do as like a fan. But it's just a way to send everybody to one place mm. and have all of that income sort of like directly fund my life. <laughs> um, totally. But in addition, I'm also releasing music with Empress Records. And so that's the other... So I'm not going to be releasing new music that way, but like everything else that I do. So webcasts, mm. podcasts, blogs, like any other creative exploit is going to happen there. And my my older records that I own that I independently released also are going to be there. So, mm. yeah. I like how you turn my question about your Star Trek podcast <laughs> into Patreon. Well, it's all kind of wrapped up together nice because <laughs> I am I am releasing them at the same time. So... Like the Patreon people are going to get the first four episodes and everybody else is just going to get one a month. And so it's just like, I'm kind of like releasing them in tandem. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the way that you can subscribe to the podcast and hear like the first couple episodes is to doing that. So who's your favorite character on Star Trek? I mean, Captain Picard, obviously. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Have you watched the new show? Of course. Picard? Obviously. <laughs> I watched it. Uh, I watched it on like a really sketchy internet website, cool, cool. and it was great. <laughs> but I couldn't figure out like a, you know all these like porn pop ups. Oh no! <laughs> infiltrating the screen. So that's terrible. yeah. But it was awesome. Well, it's I really on liked CBS, it. and I think they have like a thirty day free trial. So you could do it that oh, way, right? And there's also another series on there called Discovery, which is excellent. Um, and again, 30-day free trial. They have these things called short treks on there, which are really great. And they have every season of every series of Star Trek on CBS. Wow. And it's like if you actually That's end awesome. up buying it, which I did, it's like five bucks a month or something. So um, worth it. Totally worth it. They have new there's gonna be like a new animated series called um Lower Decks that's like like a comedy series as well that's coming out soon. And there's also gonna be um 
it's kind of hard to explain, but if, I don't know. Have you seen the original series of Star Trek at all? Like with Shatner mm-hmm. and everything? Okay. Are you, are you aware of like the pilot, the first pilot that they made before episode one? So they made this no. pilot that they pitched to the networks that didn't end up getting aired. And it had a slightly different cast. Like Spock was the only character that like sort of made it to the, to the next um, iteration hmm. of Star Trek. So with Shatner and everybody. Um, but this like, so there's this one episode where there's a different captain on the Enterprise and there's like kind of a different crew. And number one, his like first officer is a woman named number one. And so there's going to be a new series that they're making on CBS that's that crew, including a young Spock. It's like a spinoff series for Discovery. And, and that's an- the animated? No, or- it's going to be like live action no. and it's going to be pretty... They're they're trying to keep it true to the spirit of like the original series of Star Trek. So I'm super excited about that. Those other actors who are probably who are on that that didn't make it yeah. to the real show. They must be like, yeah, that must so have sucked sad. for them. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, one of them, um, the first officer number one was played by um, Majel Barrett, who was Gene Roddenberry's girlfriend at the time, and so she was recast as Nurse Chapel, um, and she had a lot of other roles in Star Trek. She was Loxana Troy, who was Deanna Troy's mom in Next Generation. So she had like kind of recurring roles. She was also the voice of the computer. So. Even though she lost that starring role as like, you know, the first officer, which would have been cool, um, she did. She showed up a lot in Star Trek. She did okay. She did okay. I mean, the main guy I feel sorry for. I think his name is Jeffrey Hunter, but he was the actor who starred in that pilot, and he we haven't heard from him. You know, <laughs> like that was it. Dang. So, yeah, that was fun <laughs> to hear you talk about Star Trek. <laughs> well, that's just a taste. <laughs> it's like. It's like when I go to a yoga class and the yoga teacher all of a sudden starts doing like sideways planks and arm balances. That's what that was like. You're welcome. Um. Uh, Grace, before I let you go, I know we've been on the phone for seven hours. Um, are you ready to do the lightning round? Sure. All right. Some of these questions we've already answered, but let's do them anyways. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Uh, Angel from Montgomery, Bonnie Raitt, and John Prine. Yeah. Batman or Superman? Batman. Karaoke song? Either I Will Survive or, um, no, What's Love Got to Do With It? That's my final answer. What was your favorite radio station as a kid and what kind of station was it like? Um, I can't remember what the actual number was on the dial, but it was like the rock station, um, like 90s rock in Atlanta. And uh, I don't know why, but I was like kind of obsessed with that for a while, that station. And then I also listened to a bunch of jazz. It wasn't on the radio, but I just, my piano teacher was into it and I got into it. So played jazz nice. constantly. I know you have a dog or a cat. I have both. Or a dog and, you have a dog and a cat. So are you a dog or a cat person? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your coffee order? It's... A medium coffee with almond milk and stevia. First album you bought with your own money? Lauren Hill's The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Nice one. Yeah. Uh, first concert? Was the Backstreet Boys. Oh my god. <laughs> but my second, out. But my second concert <laughs> was Bonnie Raitt. Oh, alright. So there you go. What was the last book you read? Last book I read? I'm trying to remember. 
Um, I look at my app and see. <laughs> I can't really remember, actually. Um, oh, okay. So I read this um, series by Deborah Harkness, which apparently is like a TV show now, but I had kind of like just finished it. It's a trilogy. It's kind of like historical fiction meets um, fantasy writing. It's pretty cool. Mm. It's like if Twilight was cool <laughs> and had history in it. <laughs> it was great. Do you, Are you a Neil Gaiman fan? Yeah, although I really haven't read that much of, of Neil Gaiman. My brother is an obsessive fanatic um, who's read everything. Mm. So I think I just, I've never really dived in like he has. But yeah. You, you should... You should probably try the Sandman. Yeah, I should. I yeah, I should. I should. I don't have any excuse. I, I've not. I haven't really gotten into graphic novels except for X Men. Um, so that's just another thing I need to dive into. But got it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, sorry, we got sidetracked. Um, dream collaboration. Oh man. Well, there's just so many. But um, was that a Southern accent I just heard? Maybe. <laughs> Whale. Whale. <laughs> Um, <laughs> probably Lauren Hill and the Indigo Girls, and uh, I don't know any of the surviving Beatles. Um, you know, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell. Uh, I don't know. I could go on. There's, there's quite a few. But uh, all right, flying or invisibility? Ooh, good question. What, if I'm if I'm invisible, can I can I phase through things, or am I just invisible? Like, a, like, am I Kitty Pride uh, or am I in the Invisible Woman? Oh, uh, I mean, can you walk through walls? I mean, it's your world. Okay. Well, if I can phase through walls, then I would take invisibility. Because that's rare. Well, it's a Kitty Pride's my favorite character in X Men, and it's a really powerful gift because you can. There's like this one comic where she reaches into somebody's chest and like destroys their heart. So it's actually a surprisingly powerful thing wow. ability yeah <laughs> destructive yeah but you could yeah right. you just like you don't think about all the potential but like you would never have to open a refrigerator again i really hate opening my refrigerator right? so yeah <laughs> this one's easy star trek or star wars star trek. but i do love <laughs> star wars so I, I, star wars was i loved first and i was really really into in middle school and then I got into Star Trek in college. So, well, actually, in college, it was like X Files and then Star Trek. We need to do another interview about all of the nerd things that you like. Yeah, like my nerd progression was like, okay, it was Star Wars to Firefly to X Files to Star Trek. Wow. That was the evolution. That's impressive. Yeah, thank you. Okay, last question mm-hmm. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? I don't know. Maybe. Um, God, there's there's a lot of really beautiful places in the world. Maybe, God, it's hard. This is hard. Okay, maybe it's um, the Grand Canyon. Maybe it's Lake Louise. Maybe it's up in the Northwest. Like, there's that part that looks like Narnia, and I can't remember if it's like the Columbus River or if the something river. It starts with a C, but it's it's up in like Washington State, mm. and it just there's like cliffs and there's trees and just you feel like you're in Narnia so yeah it's it's incredible and there's this little town called Astoria Washington which is like a magic place that's further west that's like that's a coastal town but but when you go inland that river is just incredible but honestly there's so many beautiful places that I've been it'd be really hard to you know I've been to Italy you know I've been all over Ireland and there's just lots of, there's a lot of beauty in the world. 
So it's tough. Um, well, Grace, thank you so much. You have completed the lightning round. Fantastic. This is the longest interview that we've ever had on Basic Folk. So congratulations. You win the prize. Yay. Uh, Grace Pettis, friend to all. Um, it's been really nice to talk to you. I really appreciate hey, it. Hey, nice to talk to you too. And thank you so much for having me on. Basic Folk is produced by Adam Corey and Laura McCarthy. Adam taking the production reins this week. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Our theme music is by Alex Stanton of Townspeople. Basic Folk is a proud member of the American Songwriters Podcast Network. If you're interested in learning more about all of the episodes of Basic Folk, you can get them wherever you get podcasts, or you can check out my website, cindyhouse.net. Uh, there are so many episodes to catch up on. There's a lot of stuff there. Many hours of listening for you to do, dear friend. Okay, thanks for making it all the way to the end. I will talk to you next week or whenever you want to listen again to this podcast because it's available whenever you want to hear it. So that's how podcasts work. Okay, bye. Bye.